And I, I, I've had some interesting conversations with a number of people over the last couple of weeks. And a number of those conversations were marked by this sentiment, this statement. I'm just lonely. I'm just lonely. There are all kinds of people around. I'm not alone, but I'm lonely. And then someone else made this comment, and it is kind of akin to that. I feel insignificant. I feel like just a a little tiny cog in this huge, big thing that's going on, and and I I don't know where I fit. I don't feel like I fit. And the the temptation is to retreat or flee. Do something to try to not feel insignificant or not to feel so lonely. And I was, I've been thinking about that uh, all week and actually for the last couple of weeks and it really crystallized this last week and some of the things I want to talk to you about this morning. And I began to, I just kind of stepped back and tried to take a, a larger view of things and certainly in our culture, the world in which we live, the world in which you and I function every day and out of which we have been saved. We do live, I think, in a time, we live in an age of... Um, great personal insignificance and great personal loneliness. People are lonely. We live in a, in a, in a culture that is extremely technological. What with computers and the Internet and, uh, you know, you can talk to people around the world but not have really a relationship. You can say things on the Internet that you would never say to a person eyeball to eyeball, or at least be very careful about what you said. It's kind of like all the the restraints can be thrown off. Now, I I don't have a computer, and I don't know how to use one. People say, you don't have email? I said, do you know what my life would be like if I had email? (laughs) I don't even have voicemail. I do have a cell phone, but I only have, I think, 20 minutes. It's for emergency purposes only. I can't imagine. In fact, my son was telling me the other day, he said, Dad, we, he, I got to get you, I got to get you in the tech, you know, he's a computer guy. I got to get you into the computer age. I said, no, you don't. He said, you need a blog. I said, excuse me. I said, I suppose, I suppose the next thing you'd be telling me, I need a, I need a MySpace. No, no. But I think that the more technological we are, the more personal we have to become in, in deliberate, deliberate ways. Because it's our natural human tendency to be impersonal, to be separate, to be distant, to be independent. And all that flies in the face of what the Bible says and what we've been recreated to be and to do. And the church is key in all of this. You see, I think more than ever today, for everybody, and and more particularly, I think, for our youth, the young people growing up in this age, in this culture, more than ever, the church needs to recapture the priority of community. We can't emphasize that enough. 
That's what we are. We are community. We are the called out ones. We are part of this new community of God called the church, the ecclesia. I think you'll agree with me that it is a vital part of the good news of Jesus Christ that every single person matters to God. Would you agree with me? He knows each of us. He knows our name. You say, how do you know that he knows our name? Because he knows everything. He's omniscient. He knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. He, he knows the number of hairs on our head. It's a metaphor, and probably it's literally the truth also. Point is, he knows everything. He has a personal love for his creation. John writes that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. He loves us. I'm reminded of uh, that short man in the sycamore tree. Luke chapter 19. What was his name? Zacchaeus. It's such a telling account of of this whole theme. Jesus comes to town and a great crowds and and Zacchaeus, as you remember, was a tax collector. He was basically uh, working for the Romans and being Jewish. He was hated by his compatriots. So he was really isolated. He was, in effect, lonely. He was fascinated by Jesus and heard about him and wanted to see him. And so being a short man, Luke says he climbed a sycamore tree to get a good view And when Jesus came by, he immediately looked up and said, what? Zacchaeus, come on down. We must stay at your house. Let's have dinner. How astounding. Zacchaeus had no, no idea that he was known and known by name. Isn't that a marvelous picture? And it was that very, very direct and very personal approach of Jesus that so quickly captured the hearts of many who were lost and who were alone. The same is true today. The very direct and very personal approach. We can be very impersonal. You know, we can do mass mailings about our church, and and that's nice, but, but it's not a personal approach. The vast majority of people come to church because of a personal invitation. Oh, they drive by and see the building, and maybe curiosity grabs a few of them every now and again, and they do come and visit. But but the reality is, is the vast majority of people come because of a direct and personal invitation. Here's Jesus being very direct and very personal. And... Jesus was someone who at last demonstrated that he really cared for those people as individuals, just as he does for us. And Jesus calls us, as he did those first people and those first disciples, he calls us not to stay in our isolation, but to join the new community of God's people. He called the twelve to share their lives. Share their lives with Him and with each other. And they were to live every day in a rich and diverse fellowship. Losing independence and learning interdependence. You know, again, that that speaks right to our culture. In, In America, we are taught to be independent. We have a day when we celebrate independence. It's a philosophy. We tell our kids, go out and learn to be independent. We don't teach them that we are interdependent. We need each other. We teach them just the opposite, unwittingly. We 
We need to learn from each other. We need to grow in, in, in all manner of, 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 of understanding and riches and strength from each other. Acknowledging, I need you, you need me. Paul uses the metaphor in the New Testament that we're part of a body and all the parts belong to each other. We're all necessary. This is the essence of community. Those first disciples were, 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 to, were to share everything. They were to share their joys. They were to share their sorrows, their pains, their possessions. They were to become the community of Christ the King. In his three years of intimate fellowship and relationship with his disciples, Jesus gave us the model for the church. He loved his disciples. He cared for their needs. He taught them. He corrected them. Stimulated their faith. He instructed them concerning the kingdom of God. He sent them out in his name. He encouraged them. He listened to them. He watched them. He guided them. And then he told them, do the same thing for each other. The church that rediscovers something of the God-given quality of a sharing community is a church that will speak with great relevance. It's a church that will speak with great credibility and great spiritual power. To the world of today. This was one of the outstanding features of that first century church. In Acts chapter 2, uh, I've given you the reference in your notes, you don't even have to turn there in your Bible. Verse 42. Listen to how Luke describes that first century church. They, they devoted themselves. There's a little demon in the sound system here. Notice this. They devoted themselves. What was the word? Devoted. devoted. So you and I, as we, as we look at our involvement in the community of Christ, we have to say, am I devoted? And there were a number of dynamics that... Uh, Luke singles out, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, am I devoted to the Word? Is the Word preeminent? Does it mark my life? Does it, is it a guide for my path? They devoted themselves to the fellowship. To the breaking of bread. They ate together in their homes and to communion together. And they were devoted to prayer. They understood the importance, the significance, and the power of prayer. And look at verse 43. What follows on everyone was filled with what? Awe. You can't help but be, be filled with awe. You can't help but to be awestruck when you're around people like this. You you, you just go, wow. You can almost palpably feel the presence of God, the power of God, the devotion of these people. Everyone was filled with awe. But not only that, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. In other words, in this community where there was that devotion, God was moving mightily. Jesus says, where two or more of you are gathered in my name, I'm in your midst. The implication is uh, that his power is available. His power is present. It's not just when two Christians go to Disneyland together. We're talking about something entirely different. All the believers were together, had everything in common Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. 
There was nothing phony about these people, nothing put on, nothing pretentious. Glad and sincere hearts. This, they were excited to be together. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now notice the last sentence. Read it out loud with me. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What's the outfall of all of that? The, the community just continues to grow. The, the, the kingdom of God that starts out like a mustard seed begins to grow. In chapter 4, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, chapter 4, verse 32, Luke again says, uh, All the believers were one in heart and mind. They were together. They were in agreement. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. They held, they held their things loosely. What one had, if there was a need, uh, another one would... He says they would sell some possessions and, and, and help someone who was in need. They'd bring the proceeds of the sale, lay it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would distribute it as, what a community. What a group of people. They worshiped together. They prayed together. They worked together. They witnessed together. They shared their possessions as various needs arose. The reality of their mutual love simply was an expression of the joy of their individual salvation. They understood what God had done for them. They understood that God had saved each one individually and incorporated them into a community. The joy of their salvation caused them to want to participate this way. And it made an enormous impact on the, on the world around them, on the community around them. And Jesus Jesus said that. He said the, the hallmark of his people would be what? Love. John chapter 13. All men will know you're my disciples as they see what? Your love for one another. And that, that was the hallmark of this community. They were united by love. And he prayed for them in his great high priestly prayer in, in John chapter 17 that they would know a loving unity. And again, it goes back to the, these words. They were one in heart, one in mind. They shared, etc., etc., etc. And God added to their number daily those who were being saved. They had a per- terrific impact on the world around them. And they were having a good time. It wasn't like they were having to work hard they were having a great time together. They, they were worshiping and praising God with glad and sincere hearts. It was wonderful to get together. And God just kept adding to their number. Isn't that cool? Sometimes church can be work. I've got to go to church. I've got to put on my spiritual face. I've got to work hard. I've got to go to mini church. No, I get to go. I can hardly wait. Why? Because it's the joy of my salvation that really propels me. It's exciting. It's exciting to see what God has done and, and, and what He continues to do in, in every life. In their commitment to Christ and to one another, they became literally a visible manifestation of Christ's body on earth. We are the body of Christ. That's the metaphor that's used in the New Testament. We're the manifestation of Christ here on earth now. God's power is meant for God's people. In community. Not just for individual believers. You see that again and again and again in the New Testament. It's when brothers live together in unity... Psalm 133, verse 1. We, Alan had us sing that chorus. It's when brothers live together in unity that the Lord commands His blessing. The forming of the church into this new community of God's people, by the way, is critical to God's overall plan. God's purpose, God's plan, His 
wider purpose is identified by Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. God's purpose is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And the church is integral to that purpose. We're the vehicle through which God brings all things together. Would you agree with me that without God, without God, our society is sick and falling apart? It's just sick and falling apart. I was watching, I was on my vacation, I was watching Fox News. I was watching Hannity and Combs. Anybody watch those guys? I don't like that. The bickering and the rationalizations and the... And there, and there, I forget what the issue was, and there, you know, there was all these perspectives and angles and stuff, and I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm going, I don't hear anybody talking about God. I don't hear anybody talking about God. And I shouted at them. <laughs> Invite me on your show! I mean, all these, these astute intellectuals, everyone's writing a book. Yeah, the book has already been written. It's already been written. Every part, every particle of this world has been polluted by man's sin. Nothing is untouched. Nothing is unpolluted by our sin. Jesus says the power of the, the, this world is, is, is held in, in sway by the, by the power of the evil one. And indeed, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that creation itself is in bondage to decay. He doesn't say that to, to, to cast a pall over things or to make us hopeless. Those things are, are said for this very reason, to realize that Christ came to usher into this world the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. There is hope amidst all the decay, amidst all the destruction, amidst all the sin. There is hope. The kingdom of God has broken through. It's at hand. And it's at hand for the purpose of of uh, reconciliation. It's at the hand for uh, the purpose of uh, restoration. It's at the hand, at the hand for the purpose of healing. The kingdom of God is here to make a difference, and a terrific difference. God has chosen the church, and this blows my mind. He's chosen the church. Look around. Would you please look around? Look at each other. Turn around, look at the people behind you. Um, you should see my vantage point. Some of you are sleeping. Some of you are doodling. He has chosen the church as his agent to accomplish this great plan. But you know what? Before we can do any of that, we have to first experience this reconciliation, healing, restoration in our own ranks, don't we? That's where the battle starts, in our own ranks. As the church becomes a united and truly caring community, community of God's people marked by love, there will be a powerful effect, a substantial healing, restoration, reconciliation in other environs. Once we see that the church is to be God's agent for the redemption of this world, we can understand why the writers of the New Testament were so persistent and so emphatic about the need for believers to be reconciled to each other, to forgive one another, to not harbor bitterness and resentment toward one another, indeed to be of one mind and one heart. 
Beloved, if we can't do it here, we have no testimony. We have no testimony. Until the kingdom of God can be demonstrated in our relationships of love with one another, we have nothing credible to say to the unbelieving and broken world. Tragically, the church has been marginalized by our culture, by the world. People look at Christians today and they... Because they don't see power. They don't see the, the, the restoration that can go on in a life. Oh, it happens in, in, in various quarters, but not on the whole, if you will. It's incumbent upon every Christian to actively participate in this process. Well, what was that burden of Jesus? The core burden that he had when he prayed that prayer, that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Let me just read to you a couple of verses. The latter part of verse 11, he says this, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, notice this please, so that they may be one as we are one. We ask God to protect us and and empower us to be one. But from our vantage point, we have to fight for this. He goes on in that same prayer. And in verses 21 through 23, he says, That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see the emphasis on unity? On being one? Beloved, in a world that we're, we're taught to be independent, to do our own thing, to have our own way. God calls us, no, 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 no. We're interdependent. We've got to work together. We've got to fight for this. The very nature of the Trinity, the very nature of the Godhead, is a community of perfect love, isn't it? Perfect communion of love. I mean, John says, God is love. His very nature is love. Perfect love in perfect community in the Godhead. And the reality of God among us will be seen not just by our right doctrine, as necessary as those are and as important as those are, but the reality of God will be seen as the church itself becomes more and more a community of love. A community of love. Remember, love bears no wrong. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love is patient. Love is kind. Instead of allowing ourselves to be divided by sin, instead of allowing ourselves to be divided by competition or jealousy or envy and those kinds of things, the church must seek seriously to maintain. We have to, again, fight for this This. Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, however difficult the process may be. How critical it is in our homes, in our marriages, that husbands and wives fight for this because the devil is inciting and getting in between and our flesh is so apt to to succumb to those kinds of issues. I had a conversation with a woman uh, this last week, a, a wife who who's got three kids and and a husband who's a a bum. Her words. I very rarely let a wife gossip to me about her husband. She slipped that in. And she said, I've had it. I've had it. I'm out of here. I said, don't you dare. Don't you dare. You fight for this. You fight for your marriage. You fight for it on your knees. 
in quiet submission. You win your husband without a word. Don't you abandon those three kids. Don't you tear this family apart because you're not happy, because it's not going your way. However difficult the process is, beloved, we as a community of love must be committed to encouraging, strengthening each other along these lines. Someone says, well, doesn't sound like you were very loving. I'm very loving. You get in my office alone with me, you find out. See, in no other way, in no other way, will God's reality and His rule be seen except through the church. Our unity in Christ is, or should be, certainly, an expression of the very life of God. The church is, or at least it should be, the Word made flesh for today. Others should be able to look at our fellowship of love and say, that is what God is like. They should be able to look at our lives. We shouldn't even have to be able to say anything. They should just look at our lives and say, that's what God is like. We don't want them to look at brokenness, at, at division, at fighting, at arguing, at, 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 at all the caca, and say, that's what God is like. We want them to look at a fellowship that is full of love, full of unity, and, and we want them to just look and, and, and draw their own conclusions, spirit-led conclusions, that this is what God is like. I want to know that God. God's love among God's people is the most convincing argument for the truth of the gospel. You can have a Ph.D. in apologetics. You can be the greatest arguer for the truth. But I submit to you, God's love among God's people is the most convincing argument for the truth of the gospel. That's why discipleship lived out in community is essential for effective witness. I mentioned earlier about Jane's husband, Joe, passing away this past week and 94 years old. But here was a man raised Jewish, Jewish identity. And most of us know, understand that Jewish people have nothing to do with Jesus. They don't necessarily know why. It's just a cultural imperative. They just, well, we don't do Jesus. We don't even talk about him. We don't even mention his name hardly. And yet here he is, conveniently had many church in your home, right? What a coincidence. <laughs> and he's exposed to all these lovely people. And I know almost all the people in that many church, and they truly are loving people. I mean, you almost get embarrassed being around them. <laughs> so gracious. But, you know, just this continual loving exposure led him to Jesus. He, he drew the same conclusion. This is what God is like. These people, God's people, are like him. I want to be like them. I want to, I, I want to know him. Wonderful. They didn't pound him over the head with the Bible, did you? I hope not. He just kind of just came. Received Christ, got baptized. <laughs> and now he's standing in the presence of Jesus. I envisioned his homecoming. I envisioned his, 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 his walking through the quote-unquote pearly gates, knocking everybody down to get to Jesus to say thank you. But where'd that happen? It happened in the context of this marvelous fellowship. 94 years old. 
94-year-old men don't come to Jesus. Especially Jewish men. Except by a powerful work of God through a powerful, loving fellowship which he was exposed to. It's all community, you see. An individualistic approach is totally unbiblical. It's all community. No Lone Ranger Christians. God never meant for us to live our life on the periphery of the church. Well, I believe. I'm saved. I don't sin too bad, I don't think. (laughs) And for Christians in many churches today, you talk about fellowship. Fellowship means little more than just casual acquaintance. Fellowship means little more than just some perfunctory interaction. Or they sit next to somebody and they, and they say, Good morning, hi, how are you, God bless you. <laughs> if you really wanted to get, a, get into fellowship, you go to Disneyland together. That's a joke. <laughs> when, Jesus, when Jesus drew men and women into discipleship, he required a depth of relationship. It was much more demanding than just this perfunctory relationship. And as a result, grew to be much more enriching and powerful. That was my experience when I first became a believer. A whole new world opened to me. I started coming to this church and, and I couldn't get enough I immersed myself in fellowship and, and I could hardly wait to get to the next thing. In fact, my first Sunday morning here, some of you have heard my testimony. First Sunday morning, we had two services and that was it and then there was Sunday night, but I didn't know about Sunday night. And so I left Sunday morning. I was so excited, so excited. I remember walking home. I lived a few blocks from here. I remember walking home thinking, how am I going to make it through another week? And then somebody said, hey, maybe we'll see you tonight. And I said, oh, there's something tonight. (laughs) And it's been that way ever since. I've not been able to leave this place. (laughs) I guess you're stuck with me. If the church is to become a community of God's people, truly... It means more than just singing the same hymns and choruses. It means more than just praying the same prayers. It means more than taking the same sacraments, as important as they are. It means more than joining in the same services. It will involve the full commitment of our lives and of all that we have to one another. I want to use a a phrase that's become fairly common now. I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm committed. I'm here. Let's go. It's all on the table. I'm all in. Full commitment. Not haphazardly. Not maybe. Not well. I'm all in. It's only as we lose our lives that we find them, Jesus said. But if we seek to save our life, we're going to ultimately lose it. We're only fooling ourselves. Either you're all in or you're not. It's kind of like being pregnant. There's no in between. Either you're pregnant or you're not. Are you all in? Are you all in? Fully committed? That'll be tested, you know. That'll be tested. The enemy loves to hear when we make these professions, these commitments. Oh, he loves it and he's going to come and he's going to test that commitment. And God allows it, doesn't he? It's only as we lose our lives that we find them and so bring the life of Jesus to others. We won't have an anemic, weak fearful attitude towards sharing, we'll be bold because we're all in. Nothing to hold me back anymore. When Jesus trained his disciples, it was a crash course, you know. 
I only had three years with them. And in less, than, in less than three years, he set out to win their hearts, to instruct their minds, to bend their wills, to bind them together in this new society that he was creating and equip them with the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all in three years. And this indeed was a diverse group, wasn't it? And he knew that his time with them was short. And that he must send them out into a hostile world which would oppose them, which would persecute them, and would seek to destroy them. There was no time to lose. Although he had come to bring them life, and life to the full, and to fill their empty hearts with his love and joy, he warned them of times of suffering. He said to them things like this, A time is coming when you will be scattered. In this world you will have trouble. They will lay hands on you and persecute you. All men will hate you because of me. Many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Those words were not meant to manipulate those disciples. Those words were not some empty threat. You know that the persecution of the early church was appalling, appalling in its severity and in its cruelty. Only the love of Christ controlling those saints enabled them to conquer in His name. In their hearts, God's grace welled up, welled up so that they were able to praise Him with inexpressible joy in the midst of appalling trials. Nothing's changed. Nothing's really changed throughout this last century and even up to today in this new century. Countless millions of Christians have been and are being imprisoned. They're living under the threat of persecution, if not being persecuted. Tortured, beaten, killed for the sake of Christ. Vast numbers of Christians are suffering today. As you and I sit in relative comfort in this room right now, we have brothers and sisters around the world. We pray for the persecuted church. We have brothers and sisters around this world who are undergoing terrific suffering. And in those places where the going has been the toughest, God's grace is so evident that those disciples of Jesus who are patiently enduring such trials with considerable faith and love, their response to what their experience is serves as a strong rebuke. I think, to the coldness, to the apathy, and to the complacency of the church, the rest of the church today. We have it really soft. I had two long meetings yesterday morning, and as I was leaving my office, and many of you know our administrative offices are next door in that building next door, and if you've been up there, you know there's a marvelous balcony in, in this magnificent view of Palos Verdes and the ocean. It's just gorgeous, especially on a beautiful, bright, clear morning. And So it was about 1230. I was coming out of my office and I stopped and just looked at the ocean. It was just gorgeous. The sailboats were sailing by. It was a nice little breeze. And I said, God, I'm humbled by all this. Thank you. And my thoughts immediately, because of this sermon, my thoughts immediately went to all those who, I mean, I almost felt guilty. Because of what I get to enjoy. There are more and more signs. There are more and more signs that even if we live in comparatively safe surroundings, we may need to be alert to the sufferings that almost surely lie ahead for us.
We've been blessed. We've been fortunate. Anyone with any kind of sense can see the signs on the horizon. Jesus says, discern the signs of the time. It's essential that you and I prepare. It's essential that we prepare ourselves now, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. It's essential that we prepare ourselves now in every way for every battle, both spiritual and temporal. Battles that we shall have to fight later. We must deepen our personal knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus. We must. We must grow in our faith in our Heavenly Father. We must learn how to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. And above all, we must resolve our differences. Forgive and be forgiven and renew our commitment to one another out of love for Christ. It's a battle. It's spiritual warfare we're involved in. Our flesh doesn't want to do this. The world doesn't want to see it. And certainly, spiritual forces arrayed against us do not want to see this happen. Beloved, remember, it was the Christian community, community, that withstood the persecution of the first century. And it is Christian communities around the world today that overcome the increasing pressures arrayed against them. When Christians come together in the name of Jesus, He promises to be be there with them in special power. I'm in your midst. Implication, my power is here. Don't be afraid. Together, together, we can lift the shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the evil one. But now is the time to act. Now. Jesus decided that community should come before suffering. Why? And you just read the New Testament, you see he sets up the community, and then he says suffering is going to come. He sets up the community first. Why? Why would he do that? Yeah, yeah, because we're going to need each other. So I'm telling you, a day is coming. Get ready. Be part of the community. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Preserve unity in the bond of peace. We must understand the importance of community. And we must, each one of us, feel the need to strengthen our relationships. What can I do? What is it, how, what's in my power to contribute to this process of strengthening relationships? Each one of us. Beloved, in addition to God's covenant with us, a covenant with our brothers and sisters is the very best assurance we can get for times of hardship ahead. Who can you trust? Who can you depend upon? Who are you devoted to? Who's devoted to you? Where can you turn when the going really gets tough? The superficial fellowship of many church groups today is not sufficient. We need to see ourselves as members of one family. You often hear me talk about our fellowship, the family called hope. The family called, we're a family. We need to see ourselves that way. One body, one family, eternally united in Christ. And we must take that unity real now. And strong Loving, mutual commitment and fellowship. You say, how do I do that? You've got to make the decision first to do it. The house will come after. You've seen the banners on the, on the walls for the past few weeks. One mini church, one ministry. Just one. Be part of one group of people. Not multiple groups of people, although many of us have them. But one devoted community of people that you can get to know and love and participate with. Insurance. 
What's your ministry? I don't know. Find out. Find out where you're gifted spiritually, how God has made you to fit in, and how that gifting translates into ministry, whether formal or informal. Somebody said to me the other day, he said, I tried many church. I didn't get anything out of it. That just tightens my jaw when I hear that. I grab my stomach going, Lisa, what's the matter? I said, I'm on the verge of vomit. <laughs> I tried being in church. I didn't get anything out of it. You don't go to get anything out of it. You go to give. You go to contribute. You go to participate. And I'm dragging myself to mini church. Well, you may drag yourself, but on the way back, you say, I'm glad I went. How many, how many know that one I'm talking about? Especially our mini church leaders, right, Scott? Yeah. Go, oh, man, it's Wednesday night. Oh. <sighs> oh, you have yours. Oh, it's Tuesday night. But at the end of Tuesday night, you know, God has done something miraculous. You go, wow, yes. Are you all in? Don't answer me. That's between you and God. Are you all in? Only you can answer that question. Father, thank you. Thank you again for the church. Thank you for the community that you've built and you are building Thank you for this great salvation. Thank you for your great plan, master plan. And we get to participate. Oh, what a privilege, Lord. Stir us up, oh God. I pray that we indeed would be more and more and more this community of love and, and that unity, loving unity would, be, would mark us and that other people would just look at us and they'd see you. And indeed, they'd want to be in your family. Father, we submit ourselves to you. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. Turn our hearts more fully towards you. Give us a vision, Lord, of what could be. That indeed, we may live, hopefully and expectantly. God, we love you this morning. Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and encourage them. Encourage them to be all in. Will you do that? Let's stand together and sing before we dismiss. Sing this song together. We are joined.